Good day, Nexus folks. Uh, this is a re-recording of my sermon as the audio didn't work out great from our new temporary home. So uh, this is my second go-around. So I begin with a bold claim. There are two kinds of people in this world, two groups. There are those who are aware of the insides and outsides of things and those who are not. A story to illustrate this. We were at a last minute picnic and I had grabbed some deli meat in a plastic container from the store and I was trying to figure out how to easily share the salami with everyone. Someone helpfully suggested I remove the salami from the package and just place it on top of the package. I froze, horrified. But then the inside would be on the outside. I looked up. My dear friend Caroline caught my eye. No, she said, then the inside would be on the outside. And this cemented our friendship forever. She just got it. She got me. Everyone else rolled their eyes. I heard disparaging comments like, what's the big deal? Don't be so. But we too, we were seen and known. You got to keep the inside on the inside and the outside on the outside. A place for everything and everything in its place, right? Got to keep them separated. Staying with this inside-outside theme, let's take it a little bit deeper. Some questions for us to consider this morning. What is the relationship between your inner life and your outer life? So how much does your inner life influence your actions, decisions, responses, and how much does the outer world influence your feelings, emotions, thoughts, and focus of attention? And we're not judging here, we're just noticing, just being curious. Personally, I notice quite a bit of conflict. I have viewed my inner world as a bit of a threat, something that's better to keep under lock and key. And I have worked very hard to keep my insides inside where they belong, but sometimes they escape my filter and I say things I really wish I hadn't. One of my favorite most used sayings in my younger years was, why did I open my mouth? may have begun the time our youth group was over at the home of our church's pillar families. I was about 13. This family had such a gift of hospitality. Their home was a beautiful welcoming space. It was Christmas and their house was decked out. Perhaps I felt it was overdecorated because something came out of my mouth that I deeply regret to this day. I can still feel the shame that immediately attacked me just two seconds too late. And this is what I said. It looks like Santa threw up in here. The, the lady of the house was not very impressed, but her, but her husband just kind of went, ha! But kind of a deplorable thing to say. I have no defense, no explanation. If something similar has ever happened to you, join me now in what I call Krusty's Lament. I said the quiet part loud and the loud part quiet. So just in case you didn't hear that exactly, that's Krusty the Clown from The Simpsons. I said the quiet part loud and the loud part quiet. Kind of sounds like the things I want to say I don't say, but the things I don't want to say, those I say. So even though I have these mixed feelings towards my inner life and I worry about it betraying me, I'm naturally inclined to pay attention to it and I love holding space for others. I, I love spending a lot of time there. It's so interesting our feelings, our emotions, our thoughts, learnings and opinions of the world, the things we avoid, the things we're drawn to, our motivations, 
instincts, biases, our experiences and concepts of God. There's just layers and layers inside us. There's stuff we'd hate for people to see, and there's stuff the outside world desperately needs. Not everybody likes poking around in there, I get that. But like it or not, our inner lives have a huge impact on our outer lives because all we do is rooted in these deeper motivations that come from inside us. Our doing flows out of our being. This understanding um, is, is uh, from a basis that comes from a time Jesus went on a bit of a rant, found in the Gospel according to Matthew chapter 23. It's known as the seven woes on the teacher of the law and the Pharisees. <clears throat> With irony and insults and poke after poke, Jesus challenges these leaders. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. And that word is from the same root as the Greek for stage actor. You clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So the scribes and Pharisees are pretending, acting, faking their way through life. Their insides don't match their outsides. Jesus is pointing out this hypocrisy that accompanies their attempts to legislate purity and how they've put the bar so low, just settling for the appearance of holiness. Kept the Sabbath, you're good. Worked on the Sabbath, you're bad. Comfortingly simple. You know who's inside and who's outside. But Jesus wasn't having it. He indicted their purity system, criticizing it and its proponents for emphasizing tithing and neglecting justice. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. So what is Jesus rathering, rathering that they focus on? He'd rather they focus on the justice and the love of God and that there would be congruence between their insides and outsides. In another passage, Jesus lays out his vision. Someone asks him, what is the most important commandment? He replies, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's no commandment greater than these. Jesus is saying followers of God will love themselves, others, and God with their whole hearts, we will love with our insides and our outsides. These seven woes are a clash between social visions. There's the social vision of the scribes and Pharisees, of purity and holiness, and there's the social vision of Jesus, which involves the whole heart and compassion. He's calling them to remember their roots, how they as God's people were called to live in wholeheartedness. You will be my people and I will be your God. Quaker writer, teacher, and activist Parker Palmer has a book called A Hidden Wholeness. It is so full of wisdom. So much of what follows is taken from this book. And I need to make that disclaimer for a reason that will become evident shortly. He has a model for us 
um, which will use the strip of paper in your hand, and we'll get to that in just a minute. So for folks at home, just picture a long kind of rectangular strip of paper that's colored on one side and white on the other. Palmer begins by quoting Leonard Cohen, which is always a good start, if not a little grim. The blizzard of the world has crossed the threshold and it has overturned the order of the soul. And then he tells a story about early colonizers on the Great Plains. At the first sign of a blizzard, they would run a rope from the back door of their farmhouse out to the barn. They all knew stories of people who had wandered off and been frozen to death, losing sight of home in the whiteout while still in their own backyards. Um, I could easily picture a rope like that because my Nana and Granddad's house had a similar rope line. <clears throat> Although their rope was installed in the summer for my Uncle Frank. Uncle Frank was Nana's brother and he lived for a time in my grandparents' basement. He was blind and deaf and he used the line to get outside and up to his little summer shack on the hill in their yard. That rope was a crucial guide for him because he couldn't rely on his faculties of seeing or hearing to get him safely across the garden. So whether it's a blizzard or just not being able to trust our faculties, it's easy to fear that we or those we love will become lost. Easy to think that Cohen is right in his dark proclamation that the blizzard of the world has actually overturned the order of the soul and that the soul therefore has lost all its power to guide our lives. Can we trust ourselves? Yes, no, it's a tension. When I took a quick poll asking that question in my last sermon, most folks were somewhere in the middle. Maybe we can trust ourselves sometimes. There were no more no's than yeses, that's for sure. But Palmer is saying that our soul is that rope. It's something we can rely on and actually that we need more than ever as the blizzard grows stronger around us. Can we come to know and trust our own souls? Can both the inside and the outside of the cup and plate be ready? If so, how? Well, it's a bit of a journey. So let's use his visual aid, this strip of paper. Parker says, uh, when we're born, there's no separation at all between our inner and outer life. That's why lots of us love to be around infants and young children. What we see is what we get. Whatever is inside an infant comes immediately to the outside. They remind us what wholeness looks like. But at some point, and this is your paper now, we begin to construct a wall that separates our inner and outer lives. It serves an important purpose. It's to protect the tender places within. So look at the two sides of your wall and let the colorful side of the strip represent your outer life. This we could call the onstage life. It can be described using words like image, influence, impact, we hope to project a good image, have a good influence, make a good impact, and we fear that we don't. We ask ourselves questions, even if we aren't aware of them. We ask questions like, is anyone listening to me? Am I making any difference? How do I look while I'm trying? So that's our outside onstage life. Let the other side of the strip represent our inner or backstage life. The vocabulary to describe this experience is less anxious and more reflective. We might use words like ideas, intuitions, feelings, values, faith, and deeper still, 
whatever words you use to name the source of those things. So the mind, the heart, spirit, true self, or the soul. We ask deeper questions here. Who am I? Why am I here? What is my purpose, my value? So that's our inside or backstage life. As we go through life, we thicken the wall between our inner and outer lives. Like some of our animal friends, we can use subterfuge to do that. Um, Just picture a, a lizard threat display here. We deceive others and make ourselves look bigger or somehow better than we are. We might exaggerate accomplishments or cling to whatever indicators we can find of others' approval and acceptance, awards, certain roles we play. And then some of us deny or under-exaggerate our achievements. Humans just have a colorful variety of techniques that we call defense mechanisms to build up this wall. And some of us needed a thick wall, even at home. Others don't need it until we get to school, but sooner or later, we all need a wall for the same reason, to protect the most fragile parts of ourselves. The beliefs we hold, aspects of our identities, we protect ourselves, sometimes against great odds. How reasonable and necessary that is in this broken world. Consider LGBTQ kids living in homes and communities that don't accept fundamental aspects of their identity. Or folks asking big questions and deconstructing faith in a family or community rooted in certainty and fitting in. Of course, we hide things when it's not safe to show them. And we hide things when we think it's not safe to show them, just in case. Very reasonable protection, defense strategies, good for us. And yet, living behind a wall has consequences. And there are four here that I'll offer. First, our capacity to be seen and heard, to be known, to love and be loved will be hampered. It's really hard to build relationship through a wall. The second uh, consequence is that the wall makes it difficult for any love and light to come to us from outside us through poetry, art, nature, words from friends, podcasts, scripture, And that's a pity because the wisdom and goodness out there can interrupt the negative stories we tell ourselves, saving us from the tyranny of our own thoughts. But the wall impedes that too. Thirdly, the wisdom that God has planted in our souls will be hampered. This little light of mine will not be able to shine as brightly. And fourthly, when our inner light isn't illuminating the work we do in the world, our work will feel flat, uninspired, heavier than it might be, and our creativity will feel clenched. So I have a clenched creativity story for you. It's not very dramatic, but it's actually in these little moments that we make decisions and learn lessons that guide the rest of our lives, for better or for worse. Noticing them can loosen and bring healing. In high school, I read Robert Fulgham's books. Do you remember him? Everything I Needed to Know I Learned in Kindergarten. I just enjoyed his style. I was inspired by him. And for a piece in grade 11 English, I drew on his work heavily, maybe too heavily. As I recall, there was at least one line or an idea at least that I copied directly from his books, word for word. It was just too good and it fit perfectly. We had a supply teacher the day it was due and she read my piece. She was so enthusiastic and positive. I brightened 
enjoying the encouragement coming out of my shell to talk about it with her until she said how much it reminded her of Robert Fulgham. I stiffened, tension flooded my body. She was on to me. I had stolen those words and she knew. Inside, I ran behind my wall and hid out until she went away. With that, what that looked like on the outside was a complete clamming up and unresponsiveness to her enthusiasm and questions. Conversational shutdown. She must have wondered what she did wrong. What she did wrong was to shed light on my shame and fear that I was a fake. What might have happened if I could have stayed open and not hiding behind my wall? I might have shared my concerns with her. Yeah, I was kind of worried. I was boring too much. I tried not to. I just really like his stuff. Maybe she would have responded, I hear you. It's so great. I bet you have a lot to say from your own life and experiences, and you can do that in this style, and I know you'll find your own voice and way of writing that is unique to you. But in that moment, I chose to run to the apparent safety behind my wall, suffering burning, crippling shame alone over a pretty minor thing. This small moment added to a collection of other little moments of shame that led me to double down into being good. Good on the inside, but when that wasn't possible, at least good on the outside. And I shoved the unpresentable parts deeper down into the depths, enlarging the split between my good self and my bad self. My dividedness grew. My wall thickened. Living behind a wall means living in a certain amount of splitting or duplicity. And others will pick up on this. They'll be troubled by it. People notice the gap between our onstage performance and our backstage reality. That's what Jesus was getting at with the seven woes. And people will seek to protect themselves, holding us at arm's length. So Palmer says, the people who could help us see the light are repelled by the force of our shadow. We end up inhabiting a closed system, an all-embracing and self-referencing hell. Or so it was with me. The more divided our lives, the more afraid we are of being found out. And that separates us from people. We all live divided. We all hide, separating from our own souls, removed from the truth we carry within them within us. So why is this? Palmer says it's not for lack of ethics. Quote, doctors who are dismissive of patients, politicians who lie to the voters, executives who cheat retirees out of their savings, clergy who rob children of their well-being, these people no doubt do not lack ethical knowledge or convictions. They gave speeches and sermons on ethical issues and more than likely believed their own words, but they had a well-rehearsed habit of holding their own knowledge and beliefs at great remove from the living of their lives. Compartmentalizing. Compartmentalizing is a much-prized capacity in many lines of work. It's a synonym for the divided life. End quote. The problem is not a lack of ethics. It's the habit of living unwhole. Living behind a wall is living divided, and we were made for connection. Something inside us knows this, and will seek to get our attention through messengers like depression, aimlessness, anxiousness, anger. 
we will feel the pain of the separation of being alienated from our own truth. And that's a good thing because when the pain of our inner dividedness becomes more than we can bear, we depart on a quest, an inner quest, a journey toward living divided no more. Rather than numbing the pain that's trying to get our attention to help us, if we can feel it and name it, it will loosen and we'll come out from behind the wall towards healing. The healing journey is about integration rather than separation. We begin to build our onstage lives around our backstage values and beliefs. So take your strip of paper, join the ends together, and you've made a circle. This represents our desire for our values and our beliefs, our inner truth to be the standard for the choices we make about our lives, about the work we do and how we do it, about the relationships we enter into and how we conduct them. We desire and strive to be centered and balanced. It's a great step forward. And, interestingly, lately I've become aware of how much I love circles. I might even say God's inviting me to see how much I prefer to stay in the safety of my circles. Again, a certain amount of this is necessary, reasonable protection, and yet eventually the Spirit will invite us further up and further in. Because we might begin to notice the circle still keeps the outside on the outside and the inside on the inside separated. We might begin to notice the parallels between this ring and living in a gated community, circling the wagons, or creating a secret garden where we welcome only those with whom we feel at ease. And then we're using our inner truth to exclude anyone or anything that feels challenging Using our truth to divide means that the circle is just the wall in disguise. So maybe we need another way, a twist. What if true integration looks more like this? Take your circle, pull the two ends slightly apart, give one end a half twist and rejoin the two ends. And what have you got there? It's a Mobius strip. So holding the strip together with one hand, use a finger on the other hand to trace what seems to be the outside surface. You find yourself on what seems to be the inside of the strip. Continue tracing the inside and you find yourself on what seems to be the outside. The two apparent sides keep co-creating each other. So what's the lesson here, Parker Palmer? Whatever is inside us continually flows outward to help form or deform the world. I'll read that again. Whatever is inside us continually flows outward to help form or deform the world, and whatever is outside us continually flows inward to help form or deform our lives. So this exchange between the inside and the outside is what meant, is meant by co-creating. Like it or not, we all live on the Mobius strip, and we are constantly engaged in an exchange between whatever is out there and whatever is in here, co-creating reality for better or for worse. So we can walk this strip awake or asleep. Awake means that we're aware of the connection between our inner and outer worlds and we learn to co-create in ways that are life-giving for ourselves and others. If we walk it asleep, we're still co-creating, but unconsciously in ways that tend to be dangerous and death-dealing to relationships, to good work, to hope. Living distanced from others, keeping silent when we need to speak. 
So if this is true, if, if the Mobius strip is a good model for reality, for the Jesus path, how do we live in this reality? How do we learn to walk it awake? So Palmer suggests the first step is simply to notice our desire for the inside to match the outside, for the outside to match the inside, to be integrated and whole, and to come as we are, to be as we are. So I can sense my inner yearning to live out of wholeness. Sure. It's just that dividedness seems smarter to me most of the time, or at least easier. Often it doesn't seem worth the risk to show up fully. But courageously, what happens when we just give the desire for wholeness some room and let those feelings of longing have a little time to speak to us? Let God sing to our hearts of who we are, of connection. I am learning to do this. There are four things in particular that's, that are helping me on my quest towards wholeness. Humor and curiosity, community and compassion. Being curious without judgment makes a huge difference. And not taking myself so seriously is such a relief, honestly. It's like God's kind of humor, you know, gentle, mixed with so much compassion. And so with compassion, I say things to myself of like, sorry, I say things to myself like, oh, of course you're protecting that tender part, but you're using old tools. Let's find a better one. And then with community, I'm, I'm finding spaces where I can show up just as I am, where I can see more and more fully what's actually in my heart, both the stuff I like and the stuff I don't, and where I can be encouraged to show myself and others compassion we can build community that supports our quest for wholeness. For that, Palmer suggests we need two basic beliefs. And if these seem difficult or unlikely to you, just imagine what would it be like if this were true? And what if our community believed, number one, that we all have a reliable inner teacher that's more reliable than any doctrine, ideology, belief system, institution, or leader? And number two, that we need others to invite, amplify, and help us discern the inner teacher's voice. And there are three reasons that Parker Palmer gives for needing others. The first is that the journey to wholeness is too taxing to be made solo. We get tired, fearful, we give up. The second is the path to wholeness is too hidden to be traveled without company. <clears throat> Pathfinding involves subtle and potentially misleading clues, like we can mistake our familiar defense mechanisms for the truth of our soul, for instance. And then thirdly, the third reason we need community, we need others, is that the destination itself is just too daunting to be achieved alone. Others help us find the courage to go where the inner teacher calls us. That inner teacher is the God-given wisdom of our soul. It is the rope that will guide us through the blizzard and help us navigate when we can't trust our senses. How do you recognize the soul? Well, we can recognize it by what it wants. The soul just wants to keep us rooted, connected to community, to tell us the truth about ourselves and the world, and to give us life, and for us to become life givers in a world that deals too much death. And we can also recognize it by some characteristics. It's both shy and tenacious. 
It's like a wild animal hiding in the underbrush. So we don't go crashing into the woods yelling for it to come out. We go quietly. We sit patiently and we wait. True tenderness makes it safe enough for the soul to make an appearance. And the soul is also tough, resilient, resourceful, and self-sufficient. It knows how to survive in hard places. Palmer shares about his times of depression when the faculties he had always depended on completely failed. He needed a rope to find his way. And somehow, he sensed the presence of something in the thickets of his inner wilderness, something that knew how to stay alive even when the rest of him wanted to die. I found this to be true in my own depression. There was just something inside that held on even when it felt like I was only holding on to darkness. The fact is, the order of the soul can never actually be destroyed. It can be obscured in the blizzard. We can forget about it or deny that it exists. But we are still always in the soul's backyard with chance after chance to get our bearings to find the rope that will guide us home. All we need to do is bring down the wall that separates us from our own souls and deprives the world of the soul's regenerative powers. So we may realize and accept that we live on the Mobius Strip. So may we realize and accept that we live on the Mobius Strip and let's walk it awake. Let's intentionally work so our insides match our outsides with humor, curiosity, and compassion in community. Let's hunt for wisdom treasure on the Jesus path to find ways to help our souls thrive. I'll close with some questions for us to consider. These are questions that we we can walk with for our whole lives. Consider what impact are our insides having out there and what impact is out there having inside us? And then how can we create spaces that are hospitable to our souls? How can we move toward wholeness?